you would, turn with me to the book of Malachi. We're going to be in Malachi <coughs> chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 4 through 6. Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. And I am standing really close to this tree. Maybe it won't get knocked down. All right, Malachi chapter 4, we're going to be looking at 4 through 6 together this morning as we kind of um, come to an end of our study through Malachi. Now, we chose this book specifically to walk through as we were looking at our Advent season. And so I've thoroughly enjoyed the book of Malachi. I enjoyed um, getting to hear David and both David and Troy preach through the book of Malachi. And um, Malachi in Advent season was um, a great book, but a lot different than I thought it would be in the sense of much harder to preach than I thought it would be, um, because Malachi itself, though it falls at the end of the Old Testament, it's almost bridging the gap in between the Old and the New Testament due to the prophecies in the oracles of God. And so before we get into that, I do want to just touch on some very brief background of it, as well as kind of what we've looked at thus far in the book of Malachi. Um, I'm looking forward to, in the first of the year, starting the book of Acts. And we, we won't do that as much in the book of Acts because we're not looking at four or five weeks. We're going to be looking at it for about 25 to 30 weeks for half of it. And so, But this morning, the focus is Malachi. Um, and what we know about the book of Malachi is simply a prophet named Malachi is writing it. And he's writing it to this group of Israelites. It's about 150,000 Israelites who he is writing this to. And these Israelites... Um, really come in back into the land of God two different ways, okay? In Ezra, the book of Ezra, you have about 75,000 Jews that come back into Jerusalem, and they come back into Jerusalem with the purpose of rebuilding the temple of God because they had been in exile, they had went in through the judgment of God, and the land had been destroyed, the temple had been destroyed, and so they come back into the, the land of the promise of God, they come back to the promised land, and in doing so, the first thing they do is build the temple of God back. That was important because it was representation that they were no longer going to fall into the trap of worshiping false gods, but rather worship the one true God. And then, about some time later, another group of Israelites come back uh, in the book of Nehemiah. And in the book of Nehemiah was after the temple had been rebuilt. And so 75,000 more come to contribute to rebuilding the wall. And the reason why that was significant is now the temple of God has been built. Now to establish themselves again as a people... They first established them as a people who worship God, but to the society around them, to establish, them, establish themselves as a people set apart, they then had to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. Okay, And so these 150,000 Jews are back there, and he is writing to this group of individuals in Malachi. But it's maybe not all of them, because it's about a 70-year difference between Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi. So this time had went on, and what we saw thus far in the book of Malachi was that God's love was denied, God's honor was despised, His covenant was disregarded, that justice was delivered, that His command was dismissed, and promised distinction between the people. 
The reason why all of that is significant is that it had only been 70 years since they had entered back into Jerusalem and they fell back into same old, same old. They were worshiping false gods. They were bringing terrible sacrifices to the temple of God. They were divorcing their wives of their, um, their background and their, the, so that they could then go and marry women that were from the foreign lands. The same reason they had been judged by God and separated by God and went into exile from their homeland. The reason why their temple was destroyed and their home was destroyed was because of the same thing. Only 70 years later, they fell back into. And so the prophet Malachi is writing this letter to the people. Really with this purpose that the nation would repent and be ready to receive their Messiah. That's why we preach through it in the Advent season. It's because if we want to put ourselves in the shoes of the first coming of Christ, there's no better book to look at as a whole than the book of Malachi. Because what God desired from the people that Malachi is speaking to was that they would see the error of their ways. They would repent of their sins. They would commit themselves again to the true worship of God and in doing so, preparing their heart and their land for the birth of the Messiah. And in some ways, I think when we open up the New Testament, we see that exactly that happens. But in between Malachi's day and that happening, there's about a 400-year span of where God is silent. There's hopelessness among the people. So much so that I would argue that when we look at other books that would show us some of the historical moments after Malachi, we would see that the people of God continue down in this path of spiraling away from God until this moment of this revolt where the people of God come back and they not only come back, but they come back and they go way too far, adding too many laws to the people. And I would argue that possibly out of good intent, but even when we take the word of God and we twist it into something that it should not be with a good intent, it's still sinfulness. That's exactly what Christ calls out in the Pharisees and Sadducees and all of those individuals. And so this morning, I named some things that we've looked at so far. And each of those things were oracles. And by oracle, what I mean is this, this moment in which God is communicating something to his people out of a burden for his people, out of a desire for heart change of his people. And we've looked at several of these uh, throughout the book of Malachi, but we're getting to the point now where there's only one left. We're at the seventh oracle this morning, and it's really this idea that God's remnant is delivered. And what I mean by that is last week, we, look at, we looked at the fifth and the sixth oracle, but that sixth oracle, which was found in verses 3.13 through 4.3, was this idea of God distinguishing his people. So much so that when you look at verse 16 of chapter 3, you look at it with me real quick. It says, And then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and the book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Verse 17, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. And in the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them as a man spares his own who serves him. 
Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. That God was distinguishing in the land that he promised his people and the people that we so regularly call the, prom, the, the, the chosen of God in the Old Testament. God says, look, I am looking at this vast number, this 150,000, and I am going to distinguish even among them those who are righteous and those who are wicked. Now, what are those who are righteous and what are those who are wicked? What separates those two is simply those who trusted in the Lord. Those who trusted in the Lord are considered righteous, and those who did not trust in the Lord were considered wicked. It's no different in our day and time. Just because someone comes to know Christ in salvation doesn't mean that they are magically sinless and without fault or without error. It means that they have a heart change. Now they have a desire for Christ, and having a desire for Christ, they now live in a way that is honoring to Him. It's not as if they're perfect individuals. It's that there are people that are made righteous in the blood of Christ. And those who do not trust in Christ and those who do not live a life that would be representation of what Christ has done for them. Those who are not changed by the work of Christ in their life. We see that there is this distinction that they are now considered wicked. The reason why I say all of that is as we get into Oracle 7, this God's remnant delivered. They're not delivered in this moment, but they would be delivered some 400 years later. And what he's saying here is a promise that was to come, that God would deliver the righteous and he would judge the wicked. When you look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, I'm not going to read all of that, but what we saw in that is that God, there was going to be this great day of the Lord where God would judge the people that were wicked. And now we're seeing the flip side of that coin is if there was going to be a day which God would judge the wicked, there's certainly going to be a day where God delivers those who are righteous. And how is he going to do that is what we're going to look at this morning. So look with me in chapter 4, verse 4. I'm going to read verses 4, 5, and 6 all together. And then we're going to go back and look at that. And as we look at it together, we're also going to look at some New Testament references, okay? So let's look at verses 4 through 6 real quick, and then we're going to pray. It says this, Remember the law of the servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he would turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That is short. I want to read it one more time. It says, remember the law of the servant Moses, the statues and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of other destruction. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you. God, I thank you for the day that we um, are gathering to get here. God, the, the day that we normally would gather in honor of your son's resurrection. God, I thank you for the day that we celebrated the birth of him yesterday. God, my prayer now as we approach this topic of the one that was to come, but even more uh, specific, the one that was to come that would point to the ultimate one that was to come. 
God, my prayer would be is that we would see plain and clearly, God, that he is the Savior. God, he is the one that redeemed. He is the one that provides salvation for us. He is the one that we can put our faith and trust in. He is the one that we lean into and trust into to change our hearts and to change our desires and to change the people who we are so that we would look more like you. Father, that he would be the one that would provide a salvation that we cannot do in ourselves. And God, it all began on a day in which he was born in a manger. God, but it certainly did not end there. And it is not yet ended, God, because your son will return one day and he will put everything and everyone at his feet. In your son's holy name, amen. Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, we see, as I said earlier, this seventh oracle. And I'm going to have one point this morning, and it is that, that and that alone, that God's rendement is delivered. I want to emphasize this one more time before we get into it. Who is God's rendment? Who is the one that he is distinguishing from the others? Those who are righteous. What does it mean to be righteous? Those who trust in the Lord. So what he's saying here is that God is going to deliver those who trust in the Lord. And he does this not only in this moment, not only for us who trust in Jesus, but he delivers all that came before Malachi that trusted in God for salvation. When you read the book of Hebrews, you get to chapter 11 and chapter 12. And what you see in those two chapters is that by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, that by faith Abraham, that by faith Isaac, that by faith Jacob, that by faith all of these individuals trusted in the Lord and were delivered through Christ. This morning, this promise that he has here for the people of God that he was separating is that by faith they would be separated and he would deliver them. It's a great and wonderful promise for them, but it's a great and wonderful promise for us. Let's look at it together. Verse 4. Remember the law of the servant Moses, the statues and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. So Horeb, before I get into any of that, I want to kind of give us some geographical uh, understanding of Horeb and why that's significant. His Horeb was this mountain of God in which God delivered the law and all of those things to it. As, as a church, we've been reading through the, uh, the reading plan that we started in October. We just got, we're working through... Um, Leviticus right now, right? Deuteronomy, sorry. Um, Deuteronomy right now. And as we're walking through that, he's just calling into remembrance what they had already heard in, in Exodus and Leviticus and all of those things, right? And so he's calling them into remembrance. And as he's doing this, he's telling them about this day that they stood at the mountain where God descended and his holiness was on display. And they were terrified. What was this moment? This was the moment in which God delivered all of this to Moses. Then when you get in verse 5, it says the Elijah the prophet. Elijah the prophet finds himself on this same mountain. This mountain of the Lord that God descended on. This mountain of the Lord that was significant in the Old Testament. So he's saying Horeb for a reason here because it's connecting the two. It's connecting Moses and it's connecting Elijah. But verse 4, it says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him. He's looking at the people, these people that are trusting in the Lord, and he's giving them this charge to simply remember this. And it's not like, 
okay, let's memorize this so we can apply it. It's not like, like Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I remember that. But what he's saying here is not a remembrance of being able to say it or quote it or any of those things. He's saying remember this by putting it into practice in your life to live this out. He's looking at those who have trusted in him. And he says, and look, remember to live like I have commanded you to live. In short, he's looking at them and he's saying, don't be like all of your other fathers before you that have fallen so quickly away from the reality of my law and commands to Moses. Because as we've already looked at, just 70 years prior was this moment where they entered the land again to worship God and to develop themselves as a people. But now they have already fallen so quickly away from this. So he's looking at this remnant. He's looking at these group of people that have committing themselves to the Lord. He says, and remember, put this into practice. See, he refers to them as righteous, and now he's calling them to live a life of righteousness, a life of obedience. I'm going to pause there before we move into verse 5. This is so significant for us, even as believers. Is certainly we are saved by faith alone, through Christ alone, by the word of God alone, by the, to the glory of God alone, only by a work of God in our lives. We are not anything of ourselves bring into salvation all we brought was the desire and the need to judge us of our sins. But God, in his righteousness, has redeemed and saved us. And we continue to war with sin within us. We continue to fight against it. When I think of scriptural references here, I think of Paul. And Paul, was he was the OG, right? He was the greatest uh, New Testament character that we could even think of. In one account, he goes into everything that he went through. Thirteen books of the entire New Testament was written by Paul and Paul alone. There's numerous churches planted, multiple missionary journeys. Paul was the man. He was the guy. But what does Paul say? Paul says, I am the chief sinner. That I'm the worst of them all. That there is no one that has sinned greater than I. Why does Paul say that? He says that because he knows his sin, but he doesn't know the sins of those around him. When the reality for us is that we are so sinful people. We can't separate that from ourselves. But what we can understand and know is that is not an excuse or a reason to continue to sin. We are called to live a life of righteousness and a life of obedience even after we have been set apart. And that's what he's calling his people to here. And he's gave some very specific ways to do that so far in the book of Malachi. And I'm not going to recount all of those. But simply say is that those who have been set apart by the Lord, those who have been redeemed by the Lord, are called to live as if they have been redeemed by the Lord. Every book that Paul wrote, the first few chapters or the first half of the book is the gospel. And then the second part is implications of the gospel. What he's saying here is the same thing. Is now that you have been set apart for the Lord, remember the statues and the laws that I have given you and now live a life of righteousness. Second thing we're going to see is in verse 5. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet going to pause there because honestly this is one of the most confusing realities for me within the 
the birth the birth and narrative of Christ, okay? The reason why is, and you would think maybe the incarnation of Christ, virgin birth, maybe that would be confusing, but God will do what God wants, right? God is sovereign. God is in control. If he wants to cause a, a woman that had never been with a man to try, have a child, that God is certainly in control of that. The one who was born was the one that God created all the world through. Certainly he can create one man in this specific way, right? All of those things may be hard, but I, I can reconcile those things with a lot of faith. But here... He refers to him specifically as Elijah the prophet. For me, that's hard because does he mean the prophet, Elijah, may be reincarnated, which would be not consistent with the rest of Scripture, or does he mean a prophet like Elijah? I'm not sure. I land with the second one. Not necessarily that John the Baptist is Elijah, but rather a prophet much like Elijah. And so he says before the great and awesome day of the Lord that there was this process. And in the process was that he was going to send one that was like Elijah, the prophet, that would come before him. And so for that, I want to look at Matthew 11. So me, Matthew 11, we're going to look at 15 verses there. But Matthew 11, verses 1 through 15, is where we get later in the life of Jesus, about 30 years in. Maybe even a little bit longer than that, right before the death of John the Baptist, we see this encounter with some messengers from John the Baptist. Let's look at it together. It says, When Jesus had finished instructing the twelve, he went out from there to teach and preach to their cities. So put some context here. Jesus just said, Look, you twelve, go out and preach the gospel. And as they're preaching the gospel, he stays and he is teaching in the, the cities in which the disciples were at or were from. All right, verse 2. And now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word from it for, by his disciples. All right, so make this make sense. John the Baptist, uh, a prophet of the Lord, had other people that followed him that were his disciples, not the disciples, but his disciples, those who was he was teaching, those who he was training, those who he was teaching how to follow after Jesus eventually, right? His disciples, his followers, his students, however you want to think of that. Verse 3, And he said to them, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So John the Baptist is writing to Jesus with this very simple question, Are you the one that is to come? What does he say? Verse 4. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind will receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are given news to preach them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. He's quoting scripture of the Old Testament here. He says, go and tell John that this is happening. So he's answering John's question. He's saying, yes, I'm the one that was to come. And he's answering it by saying, all of these who are occurring, verse 7, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. So what does Jesus have to say about John the Baptist? What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go and see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are kings of the houses. 
He's saying, look, why did you go to the wilderness? Now, why did you seek after this man? Because we know John wasn't wearing soft clothing. He wasn't one that was flaky. He wasn't one that was going with the wind. He was one that was going and he was preaching something hard. Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent of your sins or be judged of your sins. He was going out and he was doing something that was contrary to everyone around him. He was providing a promise to them that there was one that was to come that would redeem them. Much like Elijah did. He's not acting like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, just giving command after command. He's one going out and he's preaching something that was hard to understand and hard to believe, but it was one of truth. Verse 8, And then did he go out and see a man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, those who wore soft clothing were king's houses. Verse 9, And what then did you go to see? A prophet? Yes, I'll tell you more than a prophet. Verse 10, what does Jesus say? This is he whom is written. Referring to scripture here. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. He's quoting Malachi here. Speaking of John the Baptist. In verse 11, Truly I say to you, among those who are born of women, there are risen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heavens has suffered violence, the violence taken by forth. For all the prophets of the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. And if you are willing, um, he who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus, referring to John the Baptist, is giving us clarity to Malachi here and saying that he is the one. He was the one that was to come. He was the one that was to prepare the way for the Savior, the Messiah, that this is John the Baptist. Why is that important as we're sitting in a church service the day after Christmas? is certainly the birth of Christ was preceded by the birth of a cousin of his named John. And when the mothers interact with one another, the baby leaps with inside the room of Elizabeth in joy and celebration and praise of the presence of a Savior. John the Baptist is the one that Malachi is referring to here. The one that was going to come, that would prepare the way. And then in verse 6, And he would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This last part, let me start there. God knows everything. Okay, I know that's hard for us to understand. It's even hard for us to swallow sometimes, but God is God. There's no one greater. There's no one more powerful. God knows all. So in this last part where he says, lest I strike the land of the decree of utter destruction, in this moment, they didn't know that God wasn't going to do that, but God was a God of giving warnings. That's what all of this book has been about, was that God was warning his people to repent of their sin and turn away, and if they did not, there would be judgment. And so this last part, he says, strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. What he means is that if the people of God would not repent, then he was going to destroy them. It doesn't mean that they were going to not be repentant. It meant that if they were not, they had, he would destroy them. But we certainly do not see that as the case as we read the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of John the Baptist and Jesus, right? So something happened. The people of God listened. But also, 
what we see in this is also a promise that was also to come, that if they did not listen to the Savior that was to come, there would be a land of destruction. And just 30 years after the death of Christ, we see the destruction of the temple, and it still has not been rebuilt. That there's a, a religious organization called, we refer to them as the Jews, that function just as the Jews did in the Old Testament without any kind of sacrifices, without any kind of religious practices. So destruction had certainly fallen upon their land. God judged the hearts of the people that were not his. But what happens to those who are his? Verse 6, this one, he's tying in the rest of Malachi when he makes this statement. He says, And I will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, the hearts of the children to their fathers. A few weeks back, David preached. And when David preached, he talked about the idea of divorce, but the, the issue with that also was the reality is that they were not raising up godly children and godly offsprings. And so what he's saying here in verse 6, he's tying it back to that, but it's very simply that there was going to be a moment of spiritual revival in the land when this prophet was to come into the land. There was going to be a moment where people were coming back to the Lord, looking back to God, rather than living in the way in which they desired to live. And in this moment in life, what we see is that when you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that is certainly the case. That there's about this 400 years of the Dark Ages that we refer to them as. And in that moment, God speaks to no one. But in the moment when John the Baptist begins to prophesy of the Messiah that was to come, we certainly see a revival. People going into the wilderness, people being baptized, people repenting of their sins, though they're not trusting in the Savior that was, had yet died. We see certainly this revival of sorts occurring right after John the Baptist begins his ministry of preaching of repentance. And so in verse 6, he's referring to that. Before that, I think it's helpful if we pick up where we were earlier this morning and we look at John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. John verses one, chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. And this is John the Baptist's response to who Jesus was. So we just looked at what Jesus had to say about John. Let's see what John has to say about Jesus. Because Malachi is making a very big distinction here. Very big highlighting the importance of John the Baptist. So we could take and we could run with that and put John the Baptist at too high of esteem. Even when we looked at Matthew 11, Jesus says, look, there was no one that has been born that is greater than John the Baptist. Jesus was born in between John the Baptist and then. So what does Jesus mean by that? Let's see what John the Baptist has to say. In verse 19, And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem and asked him, Who are you? Very simple question. Who are you? He confessed and did not not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They thought he was. They thought he was the one that was to come. He doesn't take any honor that is not his. He confesses it. I am not the Christ. Then they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. He said to them, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say for yourself? 
the humility of this man is, is on point, right? He would have known Scripture. He would have known what it said. But at this point, he did not know who he was. And he's about to explain who he knew he was. But until, I would argue, until Matthew 11, 1 through 15, until he got word back from Christ of who Christ was, he really didn't know who he was. He just knew he was doing what God had called him to do. Verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Verse 24. And now they had been sent by the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered him, I baptize with water, but among you stands one of you do not know. Even the one who comes after me, the strap whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Beth Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. I'm going to keep going. It says, And then the next day Jesus came toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he who, I said, After me comes a man ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for the purpose I came baptizing with water that we, he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself do not know him, but he was sent to me to baptize with water, said to me, He whom you see the Spirit descending and remain, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness of this is the Son of God. John the Baptist's testimony of who Christ was was that he was the Son of God, the Son of Man, the one that would live a perfect and sinless life, the one that would take a holy God and sinful man and reconcile them together so that they can have salvation through him and live with God forever. John's testimony of who Christ is, is he was the one that was going to separate the wheat from the tares. Which is exactly what we see God is promising in the book of Malachi. As I said earlier, and I said last week, the main purpose of the book of Malachi is very simply so that they would repent and be ready to receive their Messiah. And so as he ends this, in Malachi, what he's saying is, what the Lord is saying here, is Malachi is the one prophesying this to you, telling you your words, my words to you now. But there's going to be one that's going to come, and he's going to prophesy again. And when he does, the Savior's not too far behind. This morning, the reason why all of that is important the reason why all of this is significant as we look specifically at the Advent season is, yes, we can read the, the story of Christ laying in a manger, the shepherds coming, all of those things. But the reason why all of that is important is because who it was that was born. Is that Christ was the one that the people of Malachi were going to be longing for. He is the one that as you look at chapter 3, verse 16 through 18, he is the one whom they were trusting in. Jesus is the one whom they were hoping and just holding on to the reality of the moment in which he would be born. 
He was the one that was going to make everything that was wrong right again. Certainly, they misunderstood that. Troy, as he preached on it, Troy called out the fact that they were expecting a, a king that was riding in on a white stallion, taking names and kicking butt, right? This certainly was the case. We see even at the end of his death, what does Peter do? He draws out his sword, going into attack mode. They misunderstood what was going on here, but they were certainly longing one that was going to deliver them. But they failed to understand, and what I hope we understand this morning, is the one that was born wasn't coming to deliver them from the things of this world that are evil. He wasn't coming to be a king that would destroy the Roman Empire. He wasn't one that was coming to um, make the physical right again. Jesus was one that was born of God and of woman so that he could be tempted with sin and know no, no, no sin. That he could be the one that would live a perfect and sinless life so that those who trusted him could be saved. That he was born in the way that he was born, in the obscurity of life, so that he would die a death plastered on a hill for everyone to see. And that 2,000 years later, we would be still talking about his name. Why? Because his name is greater than all names. And in the day of Malachi, they were longing for this. And even in the day of Jesus' birth, there was many longing for that moment. And as we celebrated the birth of our Savior yesterday, my prayer was for each and every one of you is that you long for that second coming of Christ too. There will be a moment in which everything is going to be made right. There's going to be this moment in which we are with our Savior forever if we have trusted in Him. And He's certainly returning one day. That or we will pass away and we will be with Him. Regardless, though, the outcome of this life is the same for all. So we'll take our last breath and we will be with God forever or we will be judged by God forever. But in Christ, there's hope to be found. In Christ, there is joy to be found. In Christ, there is a love that is found. In Christ, there is a peace that has been found. So this Advent season, as we end it, let's certainly celebrate the birth of a baby that was the Messiah. But let's celebrate it. Why? Because he was the one that would die and take away the sins of the world. And let's trust him to do that. But let's not stop there. Let's be people that have been transformed by the Spirit of God that now, as he referred to in verse 4, let's remember. Let's be people that seek righteous lives, that seek to live as Christ lives. Let's be people that go and proclaim the gospel and make disciples. Let's be people that share the good news of Christ to the world around us. And while we do all of those things, we rest in the one that was born in a manger that was placed on a cross, laid in a tomb that rose again. We can find rest in our Savior, not only for our salvation, but for the work he has called us to and the righteousness he is calling us to. So let's be those people. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we love you. God, we thank you. God, I pray now that as we end the book of Malachi, God, you would be glorified, you'd be honored in all that we have said and done, both Troy, I, and David, or all three of us. Father, my prayer now is that as we sing this last song, as we sing a song that is much, very much upbeat, God, it would be one that we would actually allow to be an anthem of our hearts. God, that we would be people that we would go and tell. God, not of a birth alone, but of a birth, a death, and a burial, and certainly a resurrection that has provided salvation and hope for all who look and trust in Jesus. We pray this in your son's holy name. Amen.